All right, how y'all doing? Good. Thanks, team. It was fantastic. Uh, welcome to Spark. We're super excited to see you all. Thanks for joining us on this beautiful summer day. Did anyone just sit outside and find some sunshine for a few minutes? Are you at that part where you feel like, I can sense the days getting a little shorter, and I know this isn't going to last forever? Yeah, I found myself there this morning going, just going to sit for a few more extra moments outside and enjoy some sunshine. So welcome. We're so glad you're all here. We're continuing our series in Matthew 25. And today we're going to continue to read and meditate and think on this passage of Jesus's. As Kevin mentioned last week, um, in spiritual, in Christian practice, there are some spiritual disciplines surrounding the repetition of uh, different Bible scriptural passages, and one is called Lexio Divina. Has anybody ever done Lexio Divina? Oh, good. So many good nods. Well done, everyone. So what that practice can mean is just like you, you pick a particular scripture, and you meditate on it, and recite it, or think on it, and pray through it. And as you do so, you can often imagine yourself different places inside that story or narrative. So as we continue to read Matthew 25, I think many of us, rightly so, because we are hopefully, prayerfully, trying to be followers of Jesus and follow and emulate his way way and obey him and his commands, and because most of us in this room, many of us in this room and in this region of the world have great privilege— When we read this passage, we often hear ourselves as the people who are the ones being commanded, of course, to give the food or the water. I want to know if there's anything else that might pop. Maybe you're just in the crowd listening to Jesus say this to the followers and thinking about that. Or maybe you're in the crowd thinking, I am the one that is hungry and thirsty, and I'm glad that Jesus is looking out for me. So as we continue to read these passages over the coming weeks, I just encourage you all to Close your eyes for a few moments and take some deep breaths, find some grounding space, and think through where you might find yourself in this teaching. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will, put the people, the, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the beginning, the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do 
for one of the least of these you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The title of our message this afternoon is Elemental. Did anyone see the movie? Elemental? No? It's so good. I loved it so much. Um, And if you haven't seen it, I'll spoil it by telling you... No, I'm just joking. Um, It's fantastic, and it actually focuses on these various elements, particularly the primary two characters. One is from fire and one is from water, and they have to figure out how those two can coexist and also perhaps share life together. And part of the whole story actually is about a bit of what we're talking about today. Um, being displaced, having to flee and having to find a new place, but not wanting to lose who you are or who your culture is or how your family functions or operates and feeling torn in between all the shifts of that. So if you haven't seen it, I highly commend it, and the music's fantastic. But the reason why this message is called Elemental is because we are just going to focus specifically on the rudiments or first principles, the basic elements of this teaching of Jesus. We're going to look very specifically at what it really meant to the hearers, like what, what items or bells or images would have been popping into their head as they heard Jesus do this teaching when he's talking about feeding hungry people, giving thirsty people something to drink, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked and visiting the sick and those in prison. As we've mentioned before, there's many different ways in which you can think through this passage or talk about it, and a lot of them, I feel, often kind of do this squiggly line to get to A to B, and I would like us here at Spark to just focus on A and B, if that's okay. So another time, you can find all the people who are going to debate with you whether or not there are actual eternal fires and how that all is going to work out and who's going to go and who looks like a goat and who looks like a sheep and how we've determined all of that apparently ahead of time. But all of that on my end would be conjecture because I don't know if you know this, I have not yet died. And I have not yet gone to the good place. That's, I'm sure I'm going. And so I'm assured of my salvation. And I don't know all of the things. But I do know that Jesus' teachings here are very clear, and I can grab what I can grab. So let's first start, as we're looking at these elements, I would argue that nearly every element that Jesus is talking about here, food, water, uh, clothing, or security, safety, and those things are introduced right in the beginning of Genesis. That at the beginning of Genesis, we have a story of creation, that God looks down, and that the waters are covering the surface of the deep, and God separates those waters, put them, puts them where they are to go, and then eventually will create humanity. And as God creates humanity, God places them in a place where there's food. To start, they're all vegetarians, so if you're trying to figure out how to get closer to God, just know that eat less meat, and you'll be closer to Jesus right away. So they're all vegetarian at the beginning, but they can eat, and they can eat from all the trees, um, all those fruits, but they can't eat from that one, but that's just there for, you know, decoration. And then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I'm just joking. Um, and so then they are there, and they are to eat all of the fruits, and there is a beautiful river that flows through, rivers that flow through, there's water, all of the things are there. They are safe, and they're so safe and sheltered and unashamed that they don't need the clothing yet, right? So food, water, clothing, question mark, it's optional. It's a clothing optional beach, um, clothing optional Garden of Eden, and health and freedom and welcome are all there. God actually is the most hospitable, isn't he? I mean, he's taken some significant time to be able to say, hmm, let's set the mood. Stars, moonlight, 
How about we give them some warmth during the day, sun by day? I will give them a... I mean, when we picture the Garden of Eden, we picture something quite lovely, don't we? And so God has welcomed humanity into the creation and allowed us to be guests and stewards, guardians of that beautiful place and space. We know things go sideways very quickly. There's a sneaky snake, and then they're going to have to get some clothes because they figure out that they are naked and ashamed. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's then look at the first element that Jesus is introducing as he teaches. I was hungry, and you gave me or didn't give me something to eat. What does it mean to be hungry? I think I'm guessing that most of us in this room have not been, except maybe perhaps by choice, without food for an extended period of time. Maybe some of us have. But mostly here in the United States, there is some food accessible somewhere. So let's talk about what it means to be hungry, because maybe this isn't an experience we personally have had yet. It is a state of emptiness, reflecting a lack of physical, and I would also argue spiritual food. And the Bible is going to address both the physical and the spiritual aspects of human hunger, which the Bible will argue can only be met by the living God. Now, you would say immediately, but, but maybe God isn't the one that actually gave me that bread that I just prayed for, that daily bread in the Lord's Supper. And the Bible would argue that God has made it all, so God is the one responsible for making sure that you and I have food. Now, that spiritual state or physical state of emptiness of hunger, the satisfaction of physical hunger isn't enough, though, for the well-being of the Israelites. It's not enough just to have food in your tummy. And so God will teach them in Deuteronomy 8, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So physical hunger and spiritual hunger are both provided for by God. But hunger and famine are powerful images in the ancient Near East. Not just in Israel, but in this land in between, they don't have a mighty river. They're not by the Tigris and the Euphrates or the mighty Nile. And so they are very vulnerable to famine, to hunger. Because if there's no rain that falls from the sky, then they can't grow their crops and they can't take care of things. So there's many places in the Bible where we see stories of our biblical ancestors having to deal with hunger and famine in the land. Hunger stalks Abraham and sends him down to Egypt eventually and also out of the land he was in. Hunger stalks Isaac, uh, will stalk Joseph. The people of Israel, both in Egypt and in the Sinai, will struggle because of hunger. David will be hungry. Elijah will be hungry. Elisha and many others. And hunger is a very potent image for the Hebrew prophets and the sages and the poets. They'll use this image of hunger often. And if you just start to read through your text and ask yourself the question, how often does, it, does the prophet or the poet start to grab those images or of hunger or of thirst to communicate their desire and their need for God? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Right? And when people are hungry in the Bible, they are desperate. That's also true today, by the way. This is perhaps why we have the word Bethlehem, Bethlehem, which means house of bread, but the root for bread is the same root as the root for the word war in Hebrew because most wars are fought over whether or not they have enough bread. Most wars are fought over some need for food, some resource. 
Now, when those things are happening and people are hungry and desperate, then they'll go to war, they'll fight, they'll steal, but they'll also start to worship any gods that might be able to help. Maybe the God of Israel, we're not doing it right. Or maybe when we came into the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, we didn't do a good job. We've offended somehow the other gods that lived here before. So maybe we should take good care of the prophet's of, of Baal or the prophets that are serving Asherah. And that's the story of 1 Kings 18. There had been famine and drought in the land and nothing for three years, and people are desperate. And so they'll worship anything they possibly can to try to get that food back. Isaiah 29.8 uses the image of a hungry person dreaming of eating only to awake hungry again, that there's no, there's no break from this constant hunger. Lamentations 4.9 says it would be better to be felled by the sword than pierced by hunger. It's just better to die than to be wrestling with this type of physical hunger. And the cessation of hunger is frequently associated with God's salvation. Hannah and Mary, Jesus's mom, will both pray these beautiful prayers anticipating God's reversing the fortunes of the hungry. They'll say, you've brought down the rich and the powerful, but you filled the hungry with good things. So this is a, when you see the people who are hungry being fed, you know that God is at work. And even Jesus will grab this imagery and use it for himself. He'll say things like, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And Jesus, too, will even grab hold of the the words of Deuteronomy when he is tempted by the evil one in the wilderness. And he'll say, as he's starving and hungry himself. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Maybe those are some of the pictures of hunger that come up. But I think often we should note that in Jesus' day, there are a lot of people who are very hungry for a variety of reasons. And it could just be that there's a whole bunch of people right around Jesus at that moment who are incredibly hungry, malnourished, and needing more than they can get. Most people probably only ate meat once, maybe twice a year, if at all. Most people subsisted on very few calories, primarily found in a bit of pita-type bread and some yogurt and maybe a little bit of honey, some grain. And women had to work in the kitchen all day to make sure that their families could eat. And when the harvest would come, if it didn't come that year, how would they make it through the seasons? What would happen the next time? Next season, would there also be enough fruit, enough rain? What if locusts had come through? What if something had harmed the food supply? And you can hear that story very much in the story of Joseph as he's in Egypt, holding and stocking all the grain because he knows that famine is coming that there's not going to be enough food and they need to prepare to try to make it through. As we think through our food systems today and the people that make sure we don't go hungry tonight, what are the ways in which we receive our food? Many of us have no idea how we get the food that we get. If some, of, some of us might be really good at saying, well, I go to the farmer's market and I have a couple of favorite people and I know and that's fantastic. And I have that aspiration every Sunday. And then every weekend I'm like, I have too much going on. And I got to get ready and spark and all the other things. And then I, I don't know, you know exactly where my berries are coming from or my vegetables. Yeah? 
Anybody else in the same boat as me? Okay, we try to do our best, but we don't truly know. And we don't, if you grow something in your yard, you certainly don't grow enough to sustain your family for the year. Unless there's something about you I don't know. You have like 40 acres, somebody out here has got a lot of acreage, yeah? We are very shut off from our food process, from the ways in which we get food. We might drive by the 101 or Highway 1 and look out to the farm workers in the field. And actually, Kathleen back there will go and take you on a tour anytime to go and speak to the farm workers in the fields and to understand their plight and what is happening. But when we drive by, what happens to you? What happens to me, at least, when I drive by is I go, oh, geez, that, that looks hard and difficult and unfair and unjust. And I still need to cook dinner tonight. And so there's a lot in how we live in this world that is complicated in those processes. And we, and we might know some of the realities of hunger in the world that we live in. And we might even have a moment my daughter was young. We were standing at the Whole Foods in front of the butcher counter. I was getting ready to order something, and she came over to me, and she said, Mom, that man did something really bad to those chickens. Because the chicken still looks enough like a chicken to identify that it used to have feathers, and now it doesn't, and it used to have a head, and now it doesn't, right? And, and so she could have a moment where she recognized that the things that are wrapped in plastic and sanitized and sealed for us and that we just pretend we have no idea, we just close our eyes, we don't know where they've come from, to satiate our hunger, she could understand in the moment that there was a connection there that many people weren't making in the middle of that store. Now, as we look around the world, we know that there are 956.4 million people in hunger crisis. There are at least 140 million people in the Horn of Africa who are in a massive food shortage and hunger crisis right now. And we know that this is true, but if you look at the hunger hotspots, notice where we live. We don't live in a hunger hotspot. The hunger hotspots are happening in places where there's climate crisis and war and atrocities, and people are going hungry. In our world today, where we throw away tons of waste, where we can walk through and see plenty and be overwhelmed by the plenty, where we can ask, what do I feel like eating today, as opposed to, I will just take whatever's in front of me? There's much of the world, many of our sisters and brothers, that don't live this way. And I think in Jesus' day, many people in that crowd, as he spoke, were hungry. And then he says, I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. It's likely that he's providing water, isn't it? Or referring to water. I can move mountains. I build cities and destroy them. I've brought people together since time began, and I have the power to tear them apart. It takes a great wall to hold me back, but I can be held by a human hand. I run faster than Usain Bolt and run around the globe, and yet for millions, I run out far too soon. Every year, people spend 40 billion hours in search of me, yet I kill more people than all forms of violence, including war. 
I am the one thing no one can live without, be they rich or poor or young or old or living anywhere under the sun. I cover 70% of our planet. Yet for 748 million people, I'm still hard to find. I am essential to life, yet far too often, I end it. I am water. How do we think about water in our world? How do we consider how it functions and how it works? The amount of time that I just go up to a tap, right, without any thought, without any stop of a prayer of gratitude. In fact, I even, I really like the water at my house. Does anybody have the, like you've gotten used to that taste, and then when you travel, you're thinking, this water is good, and you're fine, but then you'll be like, but I like that taste of that water. We're so privileged. We can have water-tasting stations. Water is life. In fact, the phrase maim chaim, water, living waters, is a phrase even used to refer to God in our Bible. Water is life, and if you don't have it, you die. Nearly all of our body's major systems depend on water to function and survive, and water makes up about 60% of our body weight. Water regulates body temperature, it moistens tissues in the eyes, nose and mouth, protects our organs and tissues, carries nutrients and oxygen to our cells, lubricates our joints, lessens burdens on our kidneys and liver by flushing out products, and dissolves minerals and nutrients to make them accessible to the body. And every day, every human loses between 8 to 12 cups of water, and we need to replenish. We all need water to live, to survive. Water is power. In the ancient Near East, you would always ensure that your civilization was located and built next to a water source. If you want to know whether or not people lived in a particular area, you look for a well or a river and a series of cisterns. And having a continual source of water during wartime, especially during a siege, was vital. This was true in Jerusalem as well. And all places of living needed nearby water sources. And many cities developed protected tunnels and canals that could bring them water into the city to sustain them and even to sustain a siege. Because you had to have it. You know that in the Near East, ancient Near East, there are two seasons. There's only two, wet and dry. And when it's dry, it's dry. And there is no tap. You can't just reach over and open up water and start to have some. There's this beautiful book written by Susan Verde about the experience of Georgie Badiel. She's this gorgeous model, supermodel. And she grew up in a place where every day and all day, she would have to go and fetch water. And so if you're trying ever, by the way, I love children's books. This one's illustrated by Peter Reynolds, who I'm a big fan of. But if you want to explain this to your kiddos, I'd recommend this book. And I'm just going to start it for a moment because I love children's books. I am Princess Gigi. My kingdom, the African sky, so wide and so close, I can almost touch the sharp edges of the stars. I can tame the wild days with my song, the wild dogs with my song. I can make the tall grass sway when I dance. I can make the wind play hide and seek, but I cannot make the water come closer. I cannot make the water run clearer, no matter what I command. 
And she wakes up in the morning and she says, I don't want to go, Mom. But of course, she knows she can't wear the crown she would like to wear and instead will be wearing the water pot as they walk all day and then stand in line to grab a little bit of water that they now need to take home and boil and then do the same thing again the next day. And they don't even have to walk as far as many do. And as we look and see throughout the world, 2.2 billion people lack access to safely managed drinking water services. Almost 2 billion people depend on healthcare facilities without basic water services. And we see that there are 785 million people who remain without even basic drinking water. Much of the world is thirsty, deeply thirsty. And we know that this water cycle continues, right? This beautiful water cycle that God set up in the book of Genesis and creation, and it's all gorgeous, and it comes, and it's explained. And now we're finding that not only are we in the developed world so privileged to have so much water that we can have it whenever we want, on demand, watering green lawns when it makes no sense, and all of the things, but we've also now polluted the water that remains so that they're finding microplastics on the highest of heights and in the lowest portions of the ocean and in all of our bodies. So the very little water that is out there that can be for the people who are in deep need, we are mucking it up. Water can be chaos. The Bible knows that, speaks to it. And to many ancient people, large bodies of water like lakes and oceans represented chaos. And if you're so powerful... And the earth was understood to have been founded on the waters, and these waters were held at bay by God. And so water could become a place of deliverance or punishment. In the Bible, we read that Noah and his family are saved by the water, but wicked humanity was destroyed by it. Moses is rescued in the same river where other children were killed. Moses and the Israelites are delivered through the sea while Pharaoh's army is engulfed by it. Israel enters the land through the parting of the flooding Jordan River. Moses strikes a rock, brings forth life-saving water. Elisha instructs Naaman to dip in the Jordan River seven times to be cleansed of his skin disease. Water is a means of both rescue and rebuke and fear for the prophet Jonah. Water can be chaotic in the Bible. It's powerful, it's chaotic, it's life, and it's also used in worship. As we read through in our Bible, we see that water was central. Understanding and having water be central to the presence inside the tabernacle. There was a washing ritual that took place at the bronze basin in the tent of meeting. And a lot of Levitical ordinances used water for washing, sacrifices, or cleansing. And water, and specifically living water, Maim Chaim, was begged for every fall during the festival of tabernacles of Sukkot. And that phrase, Hosanna, Hoshana, save please, is associated with the begging of water. Every fall, to ask God to please send living water. Please send water we didn't do anything for. Please send rain from the heavens above that we might live. Save us. God, save us, please. Water is life. And so when Jesus says, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, it is a picture of giving life. That person who was thirsty that does not get water does not live. And when he says, and I was thirsty and you did not give me anything to drink, that is a picture of death. That we've chosen to not extend a hand of compassion 
to those in need. Next, Jesus says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. That phrase stranger, and there's a few different words for it in the Hebrew Bible, appears repeatedly throughout our entire Bible, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures. The stranger or the ger, the sojourner or alien in some translations, sometimes foreigner, in the Bible is one who's not a member of a particular social group. Abraham was a stranger among the Hittites at Hebron. Moses was a stranger in Midian, and the Israelites were strangers in Egypt. And this is why God then commands the Israelites to remember over and over and over again. He will say, remember, 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 you were strangers. You were strangers without rights in a foreign land. And thus, throughout the Torah, we see the Israelites developing laws, specific laws that could govern the treatment, the fair treatment of strangers. God says this to them in Deuteronomy 10, 17, 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers, providing them, what does God do for the strangers? Food and clothing. And you also should love the strangers, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And loving the stranger means to give food and clothing and care for them. Strangers were to be treated with kindness and generosity. They were included in the Israelite legal system. They were subject to most of the religious requirements, such as the laws of ritual cleanliness and the keeping of the Sabbath and fast days. They could celebrate Passover if they were circumcised and could offer sacrifices. And Ezekiel even envisioned a time when they would be granted an inheritance in the land as a sign of full citizenship. The ancient Israelites knew that strangers needed to be welcomed in. And they knew that they needed to be treated justly and fairly. It again dates all the way back to that beautiful story in Genesis 18 where Abraham in the heat of the day waited and looked. And as the three visitors, the street strangers were going by, jumped up, ran, and begged and welcomed them to come into his tent. And fed them and gave them water to drink, right? And instead, in our culture, we have things like, if you, if you look up the word stranger, immediately you get stranger danger, right? That's a quick thing right away. We warn our children if they see somebody that they don't know. I'm not suggesting that there's not wisdom in that. I'm just saying we've kind of moved very, very far, haven't we, from seeing a stranger and welcoming them in. Today, many people are in need of welcome, whether because of earthquakes in Morocco or because of floods this week in Greece, or violence in Sudan. People are being displaced in Colombia because of violence, in Syria because of war. And they might have found some place, like in the Zatari refugee camp in Syria that Kevin was able to go and visit and spend time with our friends who work there at Questcope. And there's some security there, perhaps, but it sure isn't a welcome, is it? It's a painful displacement. At the end of 2022, as a result of persecution, conflict, violence, human rights violations, or different events disturbing, causing a disturbance of public order, 108.4 million people worldwide were forcibly displaced. And many of those people over 60 million are internally displaced, meaning that they, we don't see their faces on the news. They're not trying to get out of their country. They're just displaced within their homeland. And here, even in the U.S., 
we have people in every single area there who've been displaced, internally displaced here in the United States. Why? Because of natural disasters, where they can't live where they used to live anymore because their homes have been destroyed and are gone. And yet somehow, as we continue to read through the arc of our text and the arc of Jesus' teachings and those who followed Jesus in the early church, they welcomed everyone as they came and gave to anyone as they had need, the book of Acts said. And we get to the point in Ephesians 2.19 where Paul will write, Consequently, you aren't strangers anymore. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are now fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You have been given in Jesus a mighty welcome. We are all welcomed in. I guess I'm so glad that they were listening to that teaching of Jesus that day. That's really good that they started doing that. Jesus then just says, I was in need of clothing and you clothed me. What does it mean when he's talking about this? I needed clothes and you clothed me. Have you guys thought about what are, what are the needs of clothing? Like in our world, we're like, I liked that. I thought it looked nice on me. It was within my price budget, and so I purchased it, and I wear it. But there wasn't a danger of you coming today without anything. But in Jesus' day, there were people who had nothing, and there are still people who have nothing today. So the very base in, our, in Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy of needs for clothes, the basic need here is physiological. We need to be protected, and we need to be able to be protected from the elements, and we also need to have some dignity. Because ever since they ate that fruit with the sneaky snake, we've all been ashamed. And the clothing covers up our shame, just as God covered up our shame after that fruit. We all need that today. And then we can talk about, well, we have clothes for safety, like the right type of clothes for the right type of event. And then many of us are all, we like an outfit. We're at the very top of this pyramid. Like, we don't have a need. We have, we have wants. I liked those clothes, and I decided I'd like to wear them. But much of the world is in deep need. If you are without clothes, if you're poor, if you are naked, if you are shamed and vulnerable, you lack all dignity. If you don't have the right clothes, you can't come before the judge and argue that case of injustice that's been against you. If you don't have the right clothes, you can't go to school. That's true in much of the world. Our oldest daughter, in exchange for taking care of a home and um, making, this was before she was with us, um, and making sure that... Um, Alcohol could be sold after 2 a.m. out of the home she was living in. In exchange for that little corner, she could get a school uniform, which meant then she could go to school with the other kids too. But if she didn't have that uniform, she couldn't go. She needed clothing. Many passages in the Bible use verbs that graphically communicate that the poor are often victims of greed, lust for power, and manipulation within the legal system. Because people without clothes are deeply poor and impoverished. The prophets, for instance, denounce leaders and society that crushes, deprives, destroys, grinds, tramples on, and oppresses the poor. Poverty can leave a person abandoned by neighbors, friends, and family. It feels somehow like maybe it's contagious and we should be careful. 
The poor are often prey to the cruelty of those in power, and they often have no recourse to anyone but God. So throughout the Bible, God is portrayed as the one who will respond to the cries of the poor, especially the needy among the people. And we have pictures throughout the Bible where God says, I will clothe you and wrap you in righteousness. I will care for you and provide for you the way a groom cares for a bride. And Jesus says, well, I was sick, and you, you came to visit me. Can you imagine, I mean, the amount of disease and sickness in that day? People aren't living long. They don't necessarily have a lot of sanitation, and they don't have explanations for the things that they are working on, and they don't have penicillin. They just don't have that. They, they don't have the basic needs for that. And Jesus says, instead of, oh, that person is sick, you should stay away right? So you don't get sick yourself. He says you should go. You should go and take care of them. Disease, sickness, and plagues were constant concerns for people in the ancient world. And in the Bible, miraculous healings are sought from the prophets. Jesus does heal many with diseases like leprosy or deformities or or issues with blindness or deafness, and he heals them. And the book of Acts also has many stories of people who had health problems who received healing through the early church. But he wants us to go and sit and hold the hands of the people who are sick. Have you ever been with somebody who's deeply sick? Or perhaps it's been you that's been deeply sick. You have no control over your body. You can't stop what's happening. You can't stop the suffering that you look as you look at the person that you so deeply love and as they're suffering. But what would be worse in that moment would be to be alone. And so we sit. And we stay. And we hold hands. And we do so because we know, don't you just know in your knower that the worst thing would be to be alone? And Jesus knows that too. And I think it's the same as he also pleads with us to visit those who are imprisoned. Because visitation brings their needs back to the open. When people are imprisoned and set aside and pushed away, we don't see what's happening to them, particularly here in our nation. In the Bible, imprisonment included like holding somebody for a while while they awaited trial, or if somebody was poor and they had defaulted on their debt, the debtors were imprisoned and constrained to forced labor and they could pay off their debt. I'm sure it was a very fair system. I'm being sarcastic. Um, Often the wife or children of a debtor were imprisoned rather than the debtor himself. Why? Because he was the one that could go work. And the children and the wife could be held into the home and be forced into labor. They would hold prisoners of war. They were used as cheap labor by the authorities. And political enemies were imprisoned rather than killed to avoid public outcry. And the prisoner often died of malnutrition or disease. There were some structures to house prisoners, but they didn't have mass incarceration like we have today. It was maybe a storehouse or maybe a a dungeon or a pit in the case of the prophets or or maybe an extra room off the temple or a private house. They were often prisoners fed very little and treated very harshly. And they had no advocate, not a recourse in front of them if they're hidden away and just mistreated. And Jesus says, go find that person and be with them. You think of what a deep act of mercy and compassion that is. We know 
here in the United States that we have atrocious and unfair and unjust and horrific and ineffective, cruel, inhumane prison systems. But we don't go to them, do we? Not many of us do. First of all, it's very hard. They make it very difficult for any one of us. You, you can't just go and say, I heard a good sermon yesterday, and I would like to go and visit somebody in prison today so I can fulfill the obligation that Jesus has given me in Matthew 25. And they will say, no, 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 you can't, you can't just show up and do that. Which is why we're so grateful for those of us in this room, I know many of you who do go through all the hoops to make sure you can extend some hope some companionship to people who have lost all hope. Because the prison conditions in the United States of America are overcrowded, violent, and inhumane. And most don't provide treatment or education or rehabilitation. But fortunately, people at the Equal Justice Initiative and at the ACLU and others are fighting to make those changes. But these things are hidden. And I think Jesus knows that injustice can grow and can thrive behind closed doors, behind prison bars. But what if all of a sudden a whole bunch of us started going and we started getting really angry about what we saw and we started telling people what we saw? Even the visitation process for many families can be deeply painful and cruel and expensive. But what would the world look like if we listened to these teachings of Jesus and we really considered these basic human fundamental needs for food, for water, for welcome, for clothing, for healing, for justice, for companionship and compassion, for dignity. The Bible begins and ends with stories of God providing us what we need. Food, water, safety, clothing, healing, and freedom. That's Genesis all the way up until the sneaky snake. But we also have it at the end in Revelation where there's water and a river of life and trees whose leaves are good for the healing of the nations. And all there, we also see that we will be clothed with white raiment and we will, our names will be written down in that book of life. And beautifully in Revelation 21, We'll hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, now the dwelling place of God is with God's people. God now is with us. And God will dwell with us and we will be his people. And God himself will be with us as our God. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And I'm so glad that the Bible shows us at the beginning and the end in Genesis and Revelation a beautiful arc that says this is how it was supposed to be and this is how it will be again someday. But until that day comes, Jesus asks us to do unto others as Jesus has done unto us. He has fed us. He has given us living water. He has welcomed us in. He has clothed us in righteousness. He has visited us when we are sick. He does not leave us alone and in prison. He has set us free. And these basic elements are needed for the full thriving and flourishing of human life. 
Our creator knows it. And our creator asks, begs us to come and to do it one unto another. And when we do, we do it unto him. We're going to take a moment to invite the team back up. And we'll turn our hearts towards this beautiful table in front of us. This beautiful table that Jesus sets for us, that that feeds us and nourishes our soul every time we come to it. Every time we come, we are given bread and we are given drink. And we are invited, all who are hungry and all who are thirsty, we all get to come to this table. For the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.